I will tie the glass and stone with string, hang the shards above my bed so that they will flash in the dark and tell the story of Katrina, the mother that swept into the gulf and slaughtered. Her chariot was a storm so great and black, the Greeks would say it was harnessed to dragons. She was the murderous mother who cut us to the bone but left us alive, left us naked and bewildered as wrinkled newborn babies, as blind puppies as sun-starved, newly-hatched baby snakes. She left us a dark gulf and salt-burned land. She left us to learn to crawl. She left us to salvage. Katrina is the mother we will remember until the next mother, with large, merciless hands committed to blood, comes. That was an excerpt from Salvage the Bones, a novel by Jasmine Ward, read by Macy Bass. And this is Novel Climate, a podcast about literature, the environment, and people. I'm Megan Modafferi. I'm a graduate student interested in the stories we tell about climate change. And today we're talking about Hurricane Katrina. As climate change increases the frequency and severity of natural disasters, they're an important flashpoint for seeing where we are on the issue and what stories we're telling about it. After all, we don't really experience climate change on the grand scale, on the planetary level, in our individual lives. We tend to become aware of it in moments of crisis when it intersects with our personal worlds through a particular and localized storm or wildfire or drought and so on and the aftermath. Hurricane Katrina, now a mere tropical depression over the state of Tennessee, but the disaster it left behind grows by the hour, and it is not simply a natural disaster tonight. It is becoming the sort of disaster humans cause. There is looting and lawlessness, overwhelming in some places, the ability of police to keep order. That was a 2005 clip from CNN. And as you might recall, the stories we tell about natural disasters have not tended to be racially neutral. For example, a lot of research has been done on media accounts of Katrina that notoriously used the word looting to describe the actions of black people and verbs like looking for or finding food for white folks taking similar actions. And this had real material consequences, which we'll talk about. So the novel we're looking at today, like I mentioned, is Salvage the Bones by Jesmyn Ward. And it offers, I think, a counter-narrative to the stories of Katrina many of us learned on TV that make up our collective memory of the events. And as usual, I want to think about the novel alongside a literary tradition, or in this case, a few literary traditions. First, I want to just briefly think about the idea of pastoralism. Pastoral literature is what a lot of people think of when they think of nature writing, because it's historically been a fairly dominant environmental form, at least in the U.S. and the U.K. People you've likely heard of, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, William Wordsworth, and so on, often wrote in the pastoral tradition, even as, in some ways, they updated it as well. But basically, in the words of literary scholar Lawrence Buell, the pastoral form has historically represented nature as a space of, quote, aesthetic pleasure contemplated at leisure. And this tradition has often misrepresented natural spaces, actually, as wild or pristine, 
meaning free from human influence, when that was not the case. The land in question may have been cultivated by laborers, sometimes slaves, or inhabited by indigenous people, or in some cases the natural space existed because of a system of land ownership that had displaced or impoverished a community. Many have argued the traditional pastoral form kind of demanded either the complete erasure or the idealization of the experiences of these people in the scenes. It imagined their lives were brimming with leisurely contemplation because of their enviable proximity to nature, compared to the speaker's post-industrial city life and all the nostalgia that's applied with that. So that brings us to the genre I'm thinking of Salvage the Bones as sort of falling within. Although sorting amazing works into genre boxes is always imperfect and imprecise, but I'm thinking of the Southern Gothic. Or, relatedly, literary scholar Matthew Wynne Seville's suggests the term the American Environmental Gothic. He writes that the power of the American Environmental Gothic resides in its genius for playing upon the terror that resides behind a curtain of pastoral beauty, forcing us to recognize the ecological horror buried, corpse-like, in the landscape. So you probably have associations with Gothic literature that the imagery from those sentences called up. It's typically associated with fear, with creepiness, but more importantly for our purposes is the idea that Gothic works surface anxieties that are culturally repressed, make visible the ugly truths that hide behind the stories we tell about the environment, ourselves, and others. Southern authors like Zora Neale Hurston and William Faulkner helped solidify the Southern Gothic as its own unique genre, and also one that grapples with both social and environmental topics. So we'll come back to genre and aesthetics, and we'll talk in depth about Ward's novel in a bit. We'll also talk about Black feminist nature writing more broadly with literary scholars Carlene Ferrari and Stephanie Dunning. But before we get too far, we need to revisit what actually happened with Hurricane Katrina. And to do that, we'll bring in political scientist Cedric G. Johnson. So my name is Cedric Johnson. There's actually another Cedric Johnson who's an academic. I think his middle initial is C. Mine is G. Yes, I'm a political scientist. My graduate degrees were in Black Studies, was the first graduate degree I got, and the second was in government and politics. And I've been at the University of Illinois at Chicago for the last decade. And Cedric has a personal connection, or many personal connections, to Katrina. I'm a Louisiana native. I grew up not in New Orleans, but in French-speaking South Louisiana. I grew up in a town called Opelousas, which is one of the oldest settlements in Louisiana. And, you know, I was affected deeply by the Katrina disaster, right? I had family across the southern part of the state, uh, and really all along the Gulf Coast. He helped give a recap of the events of Katrina and the days and weeks and years that followed. Right, so Hurricane Katrina, you know, makes landfall in late August. I think it's August 29th. You know, it was a a big storm, right? And it was a slow-moving storm, but it didn't even give a direct hit to New Orleans. It first made landfall north of Broward and Miami-Dade counties in Florida, before gaining power, eventually being designated a Category 5 storm when the eye of the storm hit the Gulf Coast near Burris, Louisiana, and then moved up the coast into Mississippi east of New Orleans. But the storm surge from Katrina pushed through various industrial canals that had been built, the Intracoastal Waterway, as well as into Lake Pontchartrain. And that water overwhelmed the city's network of pumps 
canals, and levees. And it was catastrophic failure across the city. So there's all sorts of different failures, right? From the actual levee system itself and how it was managed and how it was underfunded in recent years to try to improve some of its effectiveness to the lack of planning. This is what happens when you just use the state for, you know, supporting market-related activity. He gives a really great example of what he's alluding to here in a book he edited called The Neoliberal Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism, and the Remaking of New Orleans. And we'll break down some of that dense title in a moment. But the idea here is just to point out that market forces are sometimes at odds with environmental safety. So, for example, in 1965, there was this project called the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, which was constructed like the levee system by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Basically, it's a shipping corridor meant to shorten the route to the Gulf of Mexico for economic and trade purposes. But in the decades that followed, erosion expanded the channel significantly, and it ended up creating a direct path for Katrina into St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana, where tremendous damage was done. So this is just another way of thinking about natural disasters as also socially and governmentally constructed, even beyond climate change as an intensifying factor. And the idea that this example illustrates of governments supporting the market, at times at the expense of people, this is sometimes called neoliberalism. Yeah, so it's a term that most Americans don't use, right? We don't really talk in those terms. We talk about liberals and conservatives. And if you say neoliberal, we think it's just a new liberal, right? And it's really counterintuitive as a, as a concept. It really means the rejection of what we think of as liberalism. We think of liberals as people who want to use government to address various problems, right? They want to use government to help people who are unemployed, to help kids who are in poverty, right? Or improve neighborhoods where there's, there's poverty. And for a time in the United States, we had that, right? We had New Deal liberalism which did a lot to jumpstart the economy in the midst of the Depression, but also to change people's expectations about what the state can do, right? It can actually improve infrastructure. It can put people back to work. It can provide safety nets for people who may be out of work or just simply are disadvantaged in different kinds of ways. And so that's what we think of in terms of liberalism. Neoliberalism is throwing all of that out, right? It's dismantling the welfare state, taking away public housing, cutting programs that are intended to support people who are poor, who are unemployed, who are uninsured. It's not always Republicans who are, who are carrying these projects out. A lot of times they're people who are Democrats who've been very instrumental in terms of neoliberal reforms. And Cedric argues that this is a huge part of the Katrina story that it's not enough to think about it as a natural disaster intensified by climate change or to think about its causes or consequences as only about race. There's the disaster as the event, but there's the long, slow recovery is itself a disaster, right? And it may have been even worse for people. I think the dispersion of Black residents from the city, it had been a majority Black city, has huge political consequences. Black New Orleanians were dispersed. In those first few years, about a little less than 100,000 Black New Orleanians had not returned to the city. And you also had moves by Democratic officials from Mayor Ray Nagin all the way up through Kathleen Bobbin Blanco, which really made it difficult for a progressive New Orleans to reemerge. So you remove the public housing residents. They don't come back in the same ways. 
You, you lay off, you know, thousands of city workers. School teachers are also effectively fired when the city converts the system into a, the nation's first majority charter school system. And so just in those moves, you lose a, a political base, right, that could have pushed for some different kinds of things. And coming back to the media clip I played at the start, it's important to remember that there was not only racialized rhetoric, but racialized violence by police and others toward Katrina survivors. Yeah, so, you know, in the midst of the Katrina disaster, like that first week when people are stranded, there's no, you know, evacuation that seems to be taking shape. There's a lot of vigilante, you know, racist vigilante violence, right? There's shootings in Algiers, which is a part of New Orleans that's separated by the Mississippi River. There's an incident where a group of, of New Orleanians are attempting to find refuge by crossing the Crescent City Connector Bridge, the big bridge that leaves, you know, from downtown to the West Bank. And they have shots fired over their heads by Harry Lee, who's since died, but he was the, he was the sheriff at the time for that part of the, the West Bank. Um, they fired on, on these people to basically turn them around until they didn't want them in, in New Orleans. And then you had the, the Danziger Bridge incident, right, where two people were killed as a result and, mo- and others injured. Again, people seeking refuge, looking for support, who are, are shot by, by police. I think in these moments where the social order seems to collapse, there's the, the vigilante comes out, right? The, 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 the racist desire to protect from the, the apparent or believed predator comes out in full, full force. The flip side of that is that you also saw this outpouring of altruism in the city that gets neglected, right? Especially among the poorest folks. I mean, people doing things that were extraordinary, like, you know, carrying elderly people out of houses on punching bags and, and you know, uh, coolers and whatever they could get that could float and ferrying them to, to safety somewhere else or the ways that people were sharing, you know, these spontaneous ways, supplies that they had and, you know, organizing their own evacuations. And, you know, that kind of outpouring, especially among black working class New Orleanians, hasn't been depicted fully enough. And I think that's a big part of what Salvage the Bones, the novel, is doing. It's so not about what the media narrative of Katrina was about. But the media narrative of Katrina was so huge and so powerful that some scholars have argued there's no way to write about Katrina without responding to it. Writers who tell a different story are, in a way, inevitably rewriting or trying to adapt the record of our collective memory. So let's get into the novel. Here's Dr. Carlene Ferrari. My name is Carlene Ferrari. I am an assistant professor of English at Seattle University, and I'm interested in Black women's relationship to the natural world and how that's articulated in literature. And I asked her what is always a really hard question to describe what the novel is about. You could say that this novel is is about Hurricane Katrina, but it's to say that would be like so violently reductive. It's about the experience of a particular African American family, and Hurricane Katrina just happens to take place in the midst of them just living their regular lives. They were already an economically vulnerable 
family dealing with the loss of the mother, and this life-altering hurricane takes place. In many ways, it's also um, a kind of coming-of-age novel as well. Um, you know, our narrator, Etch, she's, she's coming into a certain sense of, of womanhood and figuring out her sexuality, and then we learn that she's also going to be a mother as well. Carlene talked about Salvage the Bones as a humanizing project working against all of the dehumanizing stories that were told in the media around Katrina survivors. I think Jasmine Ward, you know, because she, she lived through Hurricane Katrina herself, I think that it was really important for her to, to humanize the people, right? Because um, if you remember the media reports of how villainized and, and how demonized and really, quite frankly, criminalized, you know, when Black people were. I think it's really important for the readers to develop a relationship with each of the characters and to understand the complexities of their lives, their lived experiences. So rather than open the novel with the storm and show the story that follows, the storm doesn't actually come until the last 40 pages of the book, after we've lived with these characters for more than 200 pages. And importantly, we get this glimpse into the human stories of characters who are not living in New Orleans, where Katrina's impact has been highly, though problematically, publicized. Instead, we witness the lives of characters in the rural Mississippi Gulf Coast, where the author herself is from. What I appreciate about this novel is that, as readers, you're finding out about the the hurricane just as the family is finding out about it as well, like in real time. And of course, the reader has the hindsight and, you know, you, you know how bad it's going to get, but they have no idea. And they don't know until, of course, it's, it's too late. And because you know how economically vulnerable this family is, you realize that they had nowhere to go. And um, while this is just, you know, one family... There are, you, you know that there were, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of families um, just, just like this. When Mama first explained to me what a hurricane was, I thought that all the animals ran away, that they fled the storms before they came, that they put their noses to the wind days before and knew, that maybe they stuck their tongues out, pink and warm, to taste, to make sure, that the deer looked at their companions and leapt, that the foxes chattered to themselves, rolled their shoulders and started off. And maybe the bigger animals do. But now I think that other animals, like the squirrels and the rabbits, don't do that at all. Maybe the small don't run. Maybe they pause on their branches, the pine-lined earth, nose up, catch that coming storm air that would smell like salt to them, like salt and clean burning fire, and they prepare like us. And it's important for them to to get little sound bites about the hurricane in the same way that the characters themselves do. It's important for readers to to note the fact that, you know, it's not like everybody had iPhones and the internet and could just, 
look things up, right? They had, you know, that radio that was going in and out. It was staticky. And so that is how they were getting information. And so it's important for students who, you know, now have the privilege of having basically computers in their pockets to understand that the digital divide is something that is is real and something that is highly, highly racialized. At the same time, in a novel about a natural disaster, there are all of these profoundly lyrical, profoundly beautiful descriptions of nature. The county park with the dirt parking lot, which strives to impose some order, some civility to Bois, it fails. The woods muddle the park edges. Mimosa trees arch over it with the basketball players' long, graceful arms and drop pink flowers like balls. Pines sprout up in the ditches along the edge of the park, aside the netless basketball goals, under the piecemeal shade of the gap-toothed wooden play structures sinking into the earth, beside the stone picnic tables with their corners worn smooth by rain, even in the middle of the baseball field overgrown with grass. So we see our narrator Etch is musing over a natural scene at length, a very pastoral move. But she's also constantly listing its overlaps with the human world, rather than imagining nature and culture as sort of fundamentally separate. The mimosa trees are like basketball players' arms. There's a human-built play structure with the human quality of gap teeth that is sinking into the earth. And then... Maintenance workers usually country convicts in green and white striped jumpsuits, come out once a year and half-heartedly try to trim back the encroaching wood, mow the grass set to bloom, the pine seedlings. The wild things of Bois Sauvage ignore them. We are left to seed another year. Later in the novel, we witness the characters waiting for FEMA, which never comes. We see a sort of abandonment by government support. But there are convicts here, a representation of what the government is doing, and they are made to symbolically, at best, take care of this public park. It reminds me of what Cedric was saying about neoliberalism, because in a way, a county park is a government-run intersection between the human and natural worlds, metaphorically speaking, much like a levee. So in this scene, much like in the story Cedric told of Katrina, we see that where there might be support, there is instead criminalization. But we also see Etch, our main character, identifying with this lack of maintenance, this, quote, wildness. She says, we are left to seed another year. And this is profound, too, because there's a deep history and a contemporary resonance around blackness and this concept of wildness or connection to nature. To talk about this, we'll bring in Dr. Stephanie Dunning. I'm Dr. Stephanie Dunning. I'm an associate professor of English at Miami University of Ohio. She wrote a book called Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture. And here she's explaining a history of cultural associations linking race and nature. For Enlightenment thinkers in Europe, nature is the first other. And then all other kinds of groups of people get fit into a schematic that's preceded by this rupture from the natural world. She's talking here about 17th century thinkers like Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes and the sort of cultural moment when the West started defining humanity as really separate from nature, a different thing entirely. And this thinking, many people believe, underlies our attitude toward the environment today. 
makes it second nature for us to overuse it, think of it as endlessly available for commodification, without imagining any consequences on human life. But she and others are taking the argument a step further and arguing that this also underlies Western constructions of race. That in order to think of groups of people as other, we had to first see nature as a separate entity, like a canvas onto which we could project other types of life. Thus, when Europeans encounter Africans and need to define them as other for the sake of exploitation and bondage, they project onto them these notions of primitivism that come to characterize European representations of Africans and of Black people. So Western thinkers start imagining groups of people as existing on a spectrum between their version of human and nature. And this served to justify domination over those people in the form of modern slavery and its aftermath. And so I I have a long critique of that in my introduction, and I talk about how those discourses have disincentivized Black people's engagement with nature. And so there's a way in which like anti-blackness and racism and environmental destruction, you know, can't be disimbricated. If you've been with me from the beginning of this series, you've likely noticed that this is a recurring theme. It's come up again and again that the imagined gulf between the human and the natural world didn't always exist, and that this way of imagining has skewed our understanding to the point where it's hard for us to accept that environmental consequences are human consequences, not some separate problem. And it's come up that our imagining of the environment has had and continues to have racial implications both in terms of politics and infrastructure, like when we talked about legacies of redlining and the failure of the levees in New Orleans, but also, crucially, from an imaginative perspective, thinking about how underlying narratives or stories have made racial disparities feel somehow naturally occurring rather than violently constructed. And I didn't do this on purpose, but it's fitting in a way for the series to end on a novel that calls to mind the Southern Gothic, a genre that's defined itself by unearthing repressed realities. In Salvage the Bones, motherhood is a really pervasive theme. We learn that Esh's mother died in childbirth before the story begins, and her absence is felt throughout the novel. Early on, we see China, the family's pit bull, giving birth, And there is so much more to be said about China and pit bulls and what we can learn about how race is working from cultural representations of this animal, which if you're at all curious about, by the way, you have to read Stephanie's book, again, Black to Nature. I'll link it in the show notes. But China, the pit bull, gives birth, and this is what makes Esh realize she herself is pregnant, a mother in the making. And eventually, Hurricane Katrina is figured as a mother as well. And all of these instances sort of work together to complicate and rewrite cultural conceptions of Black motherhood and also of Mother Nature. There are strains of thought called ecofeminism and ecowomanism that point out how our language around nature is often gendered in ways that reveal a relationship between the subjugation of women and of nature. Words like virgin lands and fertile or barren soil point to connections between women's sexuality and role in reproduction and cultural ideas of the environment. 
And Mother Nature, like women, is typically expected to be an eternal giver, a feminine caretaker, always gentle and kind. Hurricane Katrina, I think there's a line like, Katrina was like a mother who came through and smashed everything or, or something. Katrina, the mother that swept into the Gulf and slaughtered. And so I think that it's a way of subverting the notion of mothers as, as these nurturing, you know, soft, kind, like these stereotypical notions of what it means to be a mother. And, you know, also kind of subverting the notion that nature, in order for us to love it, must be tamed must always be gentle. Like, we can only love the flower. We can't really love the hurricane. We can't really, you know. So it it's expanding these notions, I think. In an age when natural disasters are more and more frequent, what would it mean to love the hurricane? And how can we do that while also loving the people most affected by its wrath, people whose experiences of it are deeply influenced by historic and contemporary social inequalities? From talking to Stephanie, it seems to me that the point is not to love hurricanes full stop. The point is to realize that our overestimation of the dominance of our species over nature has led to a natural world that, ironically, is increasingly dangerous for our species. So the question becomes, what if instead of fighting a losing battle at maintaining dominance, that actually just adds to our risk? we look at this big picture story another way. Both Stephanie and Carlene's work focuses on black women writers who make these kinds of moves in their work, pushing against our entrenched understandings of nature as they mutually inform our understandings of race and gender. They were using a lot of natural world symbols and they continue to use natural world symbols because they're able to to see how white supremacy essentially rendered them in that way and they're pushing back on that as a critique of that kind of relationship and suggesting that nature can be generative it can be a source of of knowledge production that doesn't have to be rooted in this kind of hierarchical type of thinking And it's quite different from sort of like appreciation, where it's like you stand and you look at a landscape and you go, oh my gosh, so beautiful. Or of even, you know, ownership. It's an enmeshed, it's it's an enmeshed way of dealing with nature where the line between oneself and nature is a very fuzzy one. In a memoir by Jasmine Ward called Men We Reaped, she writes, we who still live do what we must. Life is a hurricane, and we board up to save what we can and bow low to the earth to crouch in that small space above the dirt where the wind will not reach. We honor anniversaries of deaths by cleaning graves and sitting next to them before fires, sharing food with those who will not eat again. We raise children and tell them other things about who they can be and what they are worth, to us everything. We love each other fiercely while we live and after we die. We survive. We are savages. And again, we see a term that has been historically used for racial subjugation, savage, kind of reframed here. A savage was someone seen as closer on the spectrum to nature than the Western conception of the human. 
but for Ward, it may be exactly that awareness of our closeness to nature that if we can stop weaponizing toward racial dominance, we can carry with us to survive the next chapter. This has been Novel Climate, a five-part series about literature, the environment, and people. Thank you to this episode's guests, Dr. Cedric G. Johnson, Dr. Carlene Ferrari, and Dr. Stephanie Dunning. And thank you to our narrator, Macy Bass. I'm Megan Modafferi. Thanks for listening.